Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Part 11 One knows not whether there can be human compassion for anemia of the soul. When the pitch of life is dropped, and the spirit is so put over and reversed, that that only is horrible which before was sweet and worldly, and of the day, the human relation disappears. The sane soul turns appalled away, lest not merely itself but sanity should suffer. We are not gods, we cannot drive out devils. We must see selfishly to it that devils do not enter into ourselves. And this we must do even though love so transfuse us that we may well deem our nature to be half divine. We shall but speak of honour and duty in vain. The letter dropped within the dark door will lie unregarded, or, if regarded for a brief instant between two unspeakable lapses, left and forgotten again. The telegram will be undelivered, nor will the whistling messenger, wisely a guided than he knows to whistle, be conscious as he walks away of the drawn blind that is pushed aside an inch by a finger, and then fearfully replaced again. No, let the miserable wrestle with his own shadows, let him, if indeed he be so mad, clip and strain and enfold and couch the succubus. But let him do so in a house into which not an air of heaven penetrates, nor a bright finger of the sun pierces the filthy twilight. The lost must remain lost. Humanity has other business to attend to. For the handwriting of the two letters that Oleron stealing noiselessly one June day into his kitchen to rid his sitting-room of an armful of fetid and decaying flowers had seen on the floor within his door had had no more meaning for him than if it had belonged to some dim and faraway dream, and that the beating of the telegraph boy upon the door within a few feet of the bed where he lay he had gnashed his teeth and stopped his ears. He had pictured the lad standing there just beyond his partition, among packets of provisions and bundles of dead and dying flowers, for his outer landing was littered with these. Oleron had feared to open his door to take them in. After a week, the errand lads had reported that there must be some mistake about the order, and had left no more. Inside, in the red twilight, the old flowers turned brown and fell and decayed where they lay. Gradually, his power was draining away. The abomination fastened on Oleron's power. The steady sapping sometimes left him for many hours of prostration gazing vacantly up at his red-tinged ceiling, idly suffering such fancies as came of themselves to have their way with him. Even the strongest of his memories had no more than a precarious hold upon his attention. Sometimes a flitting half-memory of a novel to be written, a novel it was important that he should write, tantalised him for a space before vanishing again, and sometimes whole novels, perfect, splendid, 
established to endure rose magically before him, and sometimes the memories were absurdly remote and trivial, of garrets he had inhabited and lodgings that had sheltered him and so forth. Oleron had known a good deal about such things in his time, but all that now was past. He had at last found a place which he did not intend to leave until they fetched him out, a place that some might have thought a little on the greenstick side, that others might have considered to be a little too redolent of long dead and morbid things for a living man to be mewed up in, but ah, so irresistible, with such an authority of its own, with such an associate of its own and a place of such delights when once a man had ceased to struggle against its inexorable will. A novel. Somebody ought to write a novel about a place like that. There must be lots to write about in a place like that, if one could but get to the bottom of it. It had probably already been painted by a man called Madley who had lived there. But Oleron had not known this Madley, had a strong feeling that he wouldn't have liked him. Would rather he had lived somewhere else, really couldn't stand the fellow, hated him. Madly, in fact. Aha, that was a joke. He seriously doubted whether the man had led the life he ought. Oleron was in two minds sometimes whether he wouldn't tell that long-nosed guardian of the public morals across the way about him, but probably he knew, and had made his praying hullabaloos for him also. That was his line. Why, Oleron himself had had a dust-up with him about something or other. Some girl or other. Elsie Bengoff, her name was, he remembered. Oleron had moments of deep uneasiness about this Elsie Bengoff. Or rather, he was not so much uneasy about her as restless about the things she did. Chief of these was the way in which she persisted in thrusting herself into his thoughts. And whenever he was quick enough, he sent her packing the moment she made her appearance there. The truth was that she wasn't merely a bore. She'd always been that. It had now come to the pitch where her very presence in his fancy was inimical to the full enjoyment of certain experiences. She had no tact. Really, ought to have known that people are not at home to the thoughts of everybody all the time. Ought in mere politeness to have allowed him certain seasons quite to himself and was monstrously ignorant of things as she didn't know, as she appeared not to know. That there were certain special hours when a man's veins ran with fire and daring and power, in which, well, in which he had the reasonable right to treat folk as he had treated that prying Barrett, to shut them out completely. But no, up she popped the thought of her and ruined all bright, towering fabrics by the side of which even those perfect, magical novels of which he dreamed were dun and grey vanished utterly at her intrusion. It was as if a fog should suddenly quench some fair beaming star, as if at the threshold of some golden portal prepared for Oleron a pit should suddenly gape, as if a bat-like shadow should turn the growing dawn to murk and darkness again. Therefore Oleron strove to stifle even the nascent thought of her. Nevertheless, there came an occasion on which this woman, Bengoff, absolutely refused to be suppressed. Oleron couldn't have told exactly when this happened. He only knew by the glimmer of the street lamp on his blind that it was sometime during the night, and that for some time 
she had not presented herself. He had no warning, none of her coming. She just came, was there. Strive as he would, he couldn't shake off the thought of her, nor the image of her face. She haunted him. But for her to come at that moment of all moments, Really, it was past belief. How she could endure it, Oleron could not conceive. Actually, to look on, as it were, at the triumph of a rival. Good God, it was monstrous. Tact, reticence. He had never credited her with an overwhelming amount of either, but he had never attributed Mira. No, there was no word for it. Monstrous, monstrous. Did she intend thenceforward, good God, to look on? Oleron felt the blood rush up to the roots of his hair with anger against her. Damnation, take her, he choked. But the next moment his heat and resentment had changed to a cold sweat of cowering fear. Panic-stricken, he strove to comprehend what he had done. But though he knew not what, he knew he had done something. Something fatal, irreparable, blasting. Anger he had felt, but not this blaze of infernal light. That appalling flash wasn't his, not his, that open rift of bright and searing hell, not his, not his, his, had been the hand of a child, preparing a puny blow, but what was this other horrific hand that was drawn back to strike in the same place? Had he set that in motion? Had he provided the spark that had touched off the whole accumulated power of that formidable and relentless place? He didn't know. He only knew that that poor igniting particle in himself was blown out. That, oh, impossible, clinging kiss, how else to express it, had changed on his very lips to a gnashing and a removal. And that for the very pity of the awful odds, he must cry out to her against whom he had lately raged to guard herself, guard herself. Look out! he shrieked aloud. The revulsion was instant, as if a cold, slow billow had broken over him. He came too to find that he was lying in his bed, that the mist and horror that had for so long enwrapped him had departed, that he was Paul Oleron, and that he was sick, naked, helpless, and unutterably abandoned and alone. His faculties, though weak, answered at last to his calls upon them, and he knew that it must have been a hideous nightmare that had left him sweating and shaking thus. Yes, he was himself, Paul Oleron, a tired novelist, already past the summit of his best work and slipping downhill again, empty-handed from it all. He had struck short in his life's aim. He had tried too much, had overestimated his strength and was a failure. A failure. It all came to him in a single word, enwrapped and complete. It needed no sequential thought. He was a failure. He had missed. And he had missed not one happiness, but two. He had missed the ease of this world which men love. And he had missed also that other shrining prize for which men forgo ease, the snatching and holding and triumphant bearing up aloft of which is the only justification of the mad adventurer who hazards the enterprise. There was no second attempt. Fate has no morrow. Oleron's morrow must be to sit down to profitless, ill-done, unrequired work again, 
And so on the morrow after that and the morrow after that and as many morrows as there might be, he lay there weakly yet sanely considering it. And since the whole attempt had failed, it was hardly worthwhile to consider whether a little might not be saved from the general wreck. No good would ever come of that half-finished novel. It intended that it should appear in the autumn, was under contract that it should appear, no matter. It was better to pay forfeit to his publishers than to waste what days were left. He was spent. Age was not far off, and paths of wisdom and sadness were the properest for the remainder of the journey. If only he had chosen the wife, the child, the faithful friend at the fireside, and let them follow in ignis fatus that list. In the meantime, it began to puzzle him exceedingly, what he should be so weak, that his room should smell so overpoweringly of decaying vegetable matter, and that his hand, chancing to stray to his face in the darkness, should encounter a beard. He thought he heard a sound from the kitchen or bathroom. He rose a little on his pillow and listened. Ah, he was not alone then. It certainly would have been extraordinary if they had left him ill and alone. Alone? Oh no, he would be looked after. He wouldn't be left ill to shift for himself. If everybody else had forsaken him, he could trust Elsie Bengoff, the dearest chum he had for that. Bless her faithful heart. But suddenly, a short, stifled, spluttering cry rang sharply out. Paul! It came from the kitchen. And in the same moment it flashed upon Olderon, he knew not how. The two, three, five. He didn't know how many minutes before another sound, unremarked at the time, but suddenly transfixing his attention now, had striven to reach his intelligence. This sound had been the slight touch of metal on metal, just such a sound as Oleron made when he put his key into the lock. Hello? Who's that? he called sharply from his bed. He had no answer. He called again. Hello? Who's there? Who is it? This time he was sure he heard noises soft and heavy in the kitchen. This is a queer thing altogether, he muttered. By Jove, I'm as weak as a kitten too. Hello there. Somebody called, didn't they? Elsie? Is that you? Then he began to knock with his hand on the wall at the side of his bed. Elsie, Elsie, you called, didn't you? Please come here, whoever it is. There was a sound as of a closing door, and then, in silence, Oleron began to get rather alarmed. It, it may be a nurse, he muttered. Elsie would have got me a nurse, of course. She'd sit with me as long as she could spare the time, brave lass, and she'd get a nurse for the rest. But it was awfully like her voice. Elsie, or whoever it is, I can't make this out at all. I must go and see what's the matter. He put one leg out of the bed, feeling its feebleness. He reached with his hand for the additional support of the wall. But before putting out the other leg, he stopped and considered, picking at his newfound beard. He was suddenly wondering whether he dared go into the kitchen. It was such a frightfully long way. No man knew what horror might not leap and huddle on his shoulders if he went so far. When a man has an overmastering impulse to get back into bed, he ought to take heed of the warning and obey it. Besides, why should he go? What was there to go for? If it was that Bengoff creature again, let her look after herself. Oleron wasn't going to have things cramp themselves on his defenceless back for the sake of such a spoilsport as she. 
If she was in, let her let herself out again, and the sooner the better for her. Oleron simply couldn't be bothered. He had his work to do. On the morrow, he must set about the writing of a novel with a heroine so winsome, capricious, adorable, jealous, wicked, beautiful, inflaming, and altogether evil, that men should stand amazed. She was coming over him now. He knew that by the alteration of the very air of the room when she was near him. And that soft thrill of bliss that had begun to stir in him never came back unless she was beckoning. Beckoning. He let go of the wall and fell back into the bed again. Oh, as oh, unthinkable. The other half of that kiss that a gnash had interrupted was placed. How else convey it? On his lips. Robbing him. Very breath. Part 12. In the bright June sunlight, a crowd filled the square and looked up at the windows of the old house with the antique insurance marks in its walls of red brick and the agents' notice boards hanging like wooden choppers over the paling. Two constables stood at the broken gate of the narrow entrance alley, keeping folk back. The women kept to the outskirts of the throng moving now and then as if to see the red-drawn blinds of the old house from a new angle and talking in whispers. The children were in the houses behind closed doors. A long-nosed man had a little group about him, and he was telling some story over and over again, and another man, little and fat and wide-eyed, sought to capture the long-nosed man's audience with some relation in which a key figured. And it was revealed to me that there'd been something in that very afternoon the long-nosed man was saying. I was standing there, where Constable Saunders is, or, or rather, I was passing about my business when they came out. There was no deceiving me, oh no, deceiving me. I saw a face. What was it like, Mr Barrett? The man asked. It was like hers whom our Lord said to, Woman, doth any man accuse thee? White as paper, no mistake, don't tell me. And so I walked straight over to Mrs Barrett. And Jane, I says, this must stop, and stop at once. We are commanded to avoid evil, I says, and it must come to an end now. Let him get help somewhere else. And then she says to me, John, she says, it's four and sixpence a week. Then was her words. Jane, I says, if it was 46,000 pounds, it should stop. And from that day to this, she hasn't set foot inside that gate. There was a short silence then. Did uh, Mrs. Barrett ever see anything like? Somebody vaguely inquired. Barrett turned austerely on the speaker. What Mrs. Barrett saw, what Mrs. Barrett didn't see, shall not pass these lips, even as is written, keep thy tongue from speaking evil, he said. Another man spoke. He was pretty near canned up at the wagon and horses that night, weren't he, Jim? Yeah, he had no half copped it. Not standing treat much neither. He was in the bar on his own. So he was, we talked about it. The fat, scared-eyed man made another attempt. She got the key off me. She had the number of it. She come into my shop of a Tuesday evening. Nobody heeded him. Shut your heads, the heavy labourer commented gruffly. She hasn't been found yet. Here's the inspectors. We shall know more in a bit. Two inspectors had come up and were talking to the constables who guarded the gate. The little fat man ran eagerly forward saying that she had bought the key off him. I remember the number because it's been free ones and free frees. One, 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 free, 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 he exclaimed excitedly. An inspector put him aside. Nobody's been in, he asked one of the constables. No, sir. 
Then you, Brackley, come with us. You, Smith, keep the gate. There's a squad on its way. The two inspectors and the constable passed down the alley and entered the house. They mounted the wide, carved staircase. This don't look like as if it'd been much out lately, one of the inspectors muttered as he kicked aside a litter of dead leaves and a paper that lay outside Oleron's door. I don't think we need to knock. Break a pane, Brackley. The door had two glazed panels. There was a sound of shattered glass, and Brackley put his hand through the hole his elbow had made and drew back the latch. choked one of the inspectors as they entered. Let's enlighten air in quick. It stinks like a hearse. The assembly out in the square saw the red blinds go up and the windows of the old house flung open. That's better, said one of the inspectors, putting his head out of a window and drawing a deep breath. That seems to be the bedroom in there. Will you go in, Sims, while I go over the rest? They had drawn up the bedroom blind also and the waxy, white, emaciated man on the bed had made a blinker of his hand against the torturing flood of brightness. Nor could he believe that his hearing wasn't playing tricks with him, for there were two policemen in his room, bending over him and asking where she was. He shook his head. This woman, Bengoff, goes by the name of Miss Elsie Bengoff. Do you hear? Where is she? No good, Brackley. Get him up. Be careful with him. I'll just shove my head out of the window, I think. The other inspector had been through Oleron's study and had found nothing, and was now in the kitchen, kicking aside an ankle-deep mass of vegetable refuse that cumbered the floor. The kitchen window had no blind, and was overshadowed by the blank end of the house across the alley. The kitchen appeared to be empty, but the inspector, kicking aside the dead flowers, noticed that a shuffling track that was not of his making had been swept to a cupboard in the corner. In the upper part of the door of the cupboard was a square panel that looked as if it slid on runners. The door itself was closed. The inspector advanced, put out his hand to the little knob and slid the hatch along its groove. Then he took an involuntary step back again. Framed in the aperture and falling forward a little before it jammed again in its frame was something that resembled a large lumpy pudding done up in a pudding bag of faded browny red frieze. Ah, said the inspector. To close the hatch again, he would have had to thrust that pudding back with his hand, and somehow he didn't quite like the idea of touching it. Instead, he turned the handle of the cupboard itself. There was weight behind it, so much weight that after opening the door three or four inches and peering aside, he had to put his shoulder to it in order to close it again. In closing it, he left sticking out a few inches from the door a triangle of black and white checked skirt. He went into the small hall. All right, he called. They had got Oleron into his clothes. He still used his hands as blinkers, and his brain was very confused. A number of things were happening that he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand the extraordinary mess of dead flowers that seemed to be everywhere. He couldn't understand why there should be police officers in his room. He couldn't understand why one of these should be sent for a four-wheeler and a stretcher, and he couldn't understand what heavy article they seemed to be moving about in the kitchen, his kitchen. What, what's the matter? he muttered sleepily. Then he heard a murmur in the square and the stopping of a four-wheeler outside. A police officer was at his elbow again, and Oleron wondered why, when he whispered something to him, he should run off with a string of words, something about used in evidence against you. They had lifted him to his feet and were assisting him towards the door. No, Oleron couldn't understand it at all. 
They got him down the stairs and along the alley. Oleron was aware of confused, angry shoutings. He gathered that a number of people wanted to lynch somebody or other. Then his attention became fixed on a little fat, frightened-eyed man who appeared to be making a statement that an officer was taking down in a notebook. I'd seen her with him. They was often together. She came into my shop and said it was for him. I thought it was all right. 111-333 the number was, the man was saying. The people seemed to be very angry. Many police were keeping them back, but one of the inspectors had a voice that Old One thought quite kind and friendly. He was telling somebody to get somebody else into the cab before something or other was brought out, and Oleron noticed that a four-wheeler was drawn up at the gate. It appeared that it was himself who was to be put into it, and as they lifted him up, he saw that the inspector tried to stand between him and something that stood behind the cab, but was not quick enough to prevent Oleron seeing that this something was a hooded stretcher. The angry voices sounded like the sea. Something hard like a stone hit the back of the cab, and the inspector followed Oleron in and stood with his back to the window nearer the side where the people were. The door they had put Oleron in at remained open, apparently till the other inspector should come, and through the opening, Oleron had a glimpse of the hatchet-like toilet boards among the privet trees. One of them said that the key was at number six. Suddenly, the raging of voices was hushed. Along the entrance alley, shuffling steps were heard, and the other inspector appeared at the cab door. Right away, he said to the driver. He entered, fastened the door after him, and blocked up the second window with his back. Between the two inspectors, Oleron slept peacefully. The cab moved down the square. The other vehicle went up the hill. The mortuary lay that way. So that was part four of The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions. And that completes the classic ghost stories rendition of that novella. I think it's, uh, I've got in my mind, 24 to 28,000 words. So it's a lot longer than a short story, which is why we've done it over four periods. I'm actually, so you may have waited, you will have waited to hear this. You'll have waited four weeks for the completed story. Um, I'm going to actually, this is my Sunday morning task. I'm going to put it all together and put it up for Patreon. So um, they don't have to wait, I'm sorry to say. But it's just a way of thanking them for their ongoing support. So Scott Juncker has just joined. So I want to thank Scott for that. Anyway, back to the story. So part four starts off, I mean, it's my part four, it's his part 11. So there's 12 parts altogether, which I've divided into four bits. But as far as Oliver Onions is concerned, this is part 11. So we start off with another philosophical rumination about the anemia of the soul and whether sanity should turn away and whether humanity has other business. And I guess what he's saying, there are some hints in that to action in the story, but what he's saying is that should we let people just cook in their own juice, I suppose. There is some talk about the telegram boy leaving, uh, the, the flowers being piled up and nobody, um, nobody, and then I'm thinking, well, this must be some mistake. There's clearly nobody here, which is, of course, what happened to the painter Matley, we infer. So there's something in that, but that first bit, bah. And then we have a kind of a, an extended session where uh, Oleron is getting sicker and sicker, and he 
um, muses about Elsie Bengough. And we the, the, the big thing in this story is whether he is insane or whether he's actually possessed by some evil. And he talks about the Beckoner being a succubus, which is an evil demon that sucks the life out of men, uh, the libido out of men, I guess. And that certainly happened to him. And he also mentions about writing this novel whereby the, and he gives a number of qualities that the heroine will have, and she is the Beckoner, uh, will, and she will be evil. And that reminded me of Galadriel in uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. I mean, I've read the books. I read the books when I was 11 or so, and I was totally absorbed by the books for years. But I liked the movies as well. So, you know, I'm not, betri- I'm not trivial. Um, so anyway, but Galadriel says something about when she's offered the ring, how um, she will be turned into a dark queen and all men will look on her and worship her and despair. So I guess this is the archetype of this femme fatale. This, there's another fantastic series of, by Ed Brubaker. If you ever get a chance to do that, he did a series of graphic novels called Femme Fatale, which, and, and actually he does a really good version of it because his femme fatale is aware of her influence on these weak men who will do anything for her. Um, but, and she tries to mitigate that and avoid that. And so actually she is a pretty good femme fatale in femme fatale. So I would, I love that series as well. So there you go. A lot of pop culture today. The Beckoner. There we are. So what is the Beckoner before we go on? He doesn't ruminate about what the Beckoner is, but we can. She's an anima. She's the anima in Jungian psychology. Each of us has. We, nobody is either uh, male, male or female. We're a mix of both. And that was Jung's great contribution, his early contribution. He was probably one of the first people to, to publicly say, you know, we, we are men and women both, no matter what we are um, in gender, in, embodied in, what body we're in. The man, according to Jungian psychology, has a feminine counterpart in his soul, which is the soul, the anima. The woman has the animus, the uh, and they have, and he had these ideas that uh, we have the opposite qualities. We, that's, I suppose, of his time, the male mind, and there is something in this, in it, Baron Cohen's work on autism, which he calls the extreme male mind, although I see a lot of autistic girls at work as well. It, the male mind, the logos, is analytical and dry and unemotional and divides the world up like a sword, chops it into bits and analyzes and works in systems. So the, the Greek word logos is word. The Latin equivalent, cognate of that, is lex, law. You know, so you can see that. So Jung would have you say that the anima is to do with emotions and dreams and inspiration and, and connection, eros, which is connection. Anyway, that's a bit of Jungian psychology for you. Interestingly also, we have Socrates back in the day, in the Greek day, and he believed that each of us is born with a daemon which wasn't a demon, it wasn't a nasty thing. In fact, it was more like a guardian angel who was to look after us and, and that was our inspiration. And so in a sense, this is what the Beckoner is. She is the muse, the muse as well, the artist's muse. Again, for a male artist, typically seen as being female, the, the spirit that pulls him on to greater and greater endeavours. But in this case, she's, she's Lilith, you know, she is the succubus. She's taking all his... Man juice, if you don't mind me saying. I don't think, I, I, I wondered whether there was some, some of that going on in this story, but Onions was too um, genteel to mention it. There's no real hint to that. Well, I don't know. So anyway, but she's no good. 
Of course, the other person who takes these ideas of demons and the inspirational spirit is Philip Pullman in his books about the dust and things like that. I have things to say about those books as well. I loved the first ones. By the end, again, I thought he got too lost in his ruminations and his philosophical ruminations. Don't get me wrong. I love a bit of philosophy. I've done part of my second degrees. And then I did a, 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 a post-grad course in philosophy of mind. So I love philosophy. But you've got to, a story is a story and philosophy is philosophy. And they're two ways of doing things anyway. The world according to Tony Walker. So the beckoner is wholly wicked and she sucks the goodness out of him. And then we have Eleven, he's going on and, he, and we have a hint that Elsie's in the room, but he can't perceive. So the big question is, does he kill her? Oh, that's the, you've already heard the story, so it's not really a spoiler. Does he kill her or does the beckoner kill her? We already know the beckoner can do physical things like with the nail and the floorboard. I think, I think the beckoner did kill her because um, the lumpy pudding thing about the size of a Christmas pudding is her heart, I think, Elsie's heart, cut out and, and wrapped in this freeze, what he calls a pudding bag, the inspector at the end, but in fact probably is the harp case that Ulderon found in the uh, window box and it didn't know what it was and Elsie did. So I think that's what that is. And poor old Elsie is stuffed in a cupboard and it takes some strength. I think the hint that he didn't do it is at one point he thinks he hears Elsie, tries to get up, but he's too weak. The beckoner makes him go back to bed with her evil influence, but he's just too weak to, to do that. So I don't think Ulleron did do it, and I don't think this is a story about madness. I think it's a story of, of evil spirits, really. And the interesting thing is, the beckoner is not a ghost. Madly is a, it was there. The beckoner is a spirit of the house. The beckoner is some kind of evil influence who is, there's no hint that she was, I mean, she brushes her hair so she's got some memory of a, a corporeal form, but she's not the ghost of anybody. She's the ghost of the song, the beckoning fair one. She's the ghost of the place. So I think that actually is a, that is a really good thing about this story that it's not just your bog-standard uh, um, Lady Jane Grey, the Grey Lady wandering the halls. Anyway, so in part 11, we go. He, the, the good bit is that he hears something, and I think that's well done. The bit I, I'm like, you know, ruminating about this, that, and the other. Elsie's great, Elsie's horrible, Elsie's uh, cheeky coming into his mind and should bugger off. Uh, oh, Elsie, come and save me. You know, we have a bit of that uh, toing and froing. I, I personally, I think he could have cut a lot of that, but there we are. That's me. I just maybe don't like that kind of thing in the story. So, however, part 12 is, I think, is really good. Part 12 is now we, 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 the camera moves and we see from outside the house and we see, and I think what he does really well is Barrett. Barrett, who is so, what's the word? There are a lot of unpleasant words for Barrett. He's a bigot. He's narrow-minded. He uses religion to justify his prejudices. He imagines slanderous things and then pretends that slander wouldn't cross his mouth. I mean, he's a wholly disgusting man. I was also thinking about Onion's portrayal of the working class in that we have these people who we talk, who talk in, a, in a colloquial way, so therefore we know that the working class, and they're characterised by being taken, it was swept away with this religious revival, 
which is its most basic and thoughtful. I do this on a Sunday morning and there's people drive past on their motorbikes. How dare they? So um, you may hear a motorbike. You may also hear seagulls. There's lots of seagulls at the moment. Opposite me, there is a roof. And on that roof is a seagull with a little chick. I watched her with her chick. I don't know where the dad is. I think he goes fishing and comes back. Fair play to him. Uh, maybe the mum does as well. I don't know. And then, uh, and then um, there are some pigeons and some jackdaws. And they all kind of live on the same roof. And they all have their own patch. And they don't, they seem to get on fine, which is nice. Anyway, back to the Buckingham Fair one. Yeah, so at the, the part 12 is a complete departure. We don't have any ruminations. We've just got drama. We've got narrative movement. We've got dialogue. We've got, you know, it comes alive. And we get this lovely twist because, I mean, the first time I read it, I didn't suspect that Elsie's body would be in the kitchen. But, you know, going over it, absolutely, you are led to that. You, you know, that's the great thing about a twist. You get to the end. Oh, my God. You get the twist. And then you look back and there were clues all along. And you can go, oh, and that is, that's actually one of the great skills of a detective story. Um, but I think you can use it well in ghost stories, and I try and do that in mine. So there we are. So the beckoning fair one. Uh, did he kill her or not? Or did the ghost kill her? I think the ghost did. There we are. Was he insane or was he haunted? I guess he was haunted. He ends it very well as well. You know how you, the rhythm of the sentences, and you have da 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 The mortuary. Lay that way. Boom. There's a Greek phrase for that kind of rhythm. I've got this um, book about things, and this is no good because I can't remember anything about it. It's a fantastic book and um, forms of words, you know, rhetoric and stuff like that, how you do words. Anyway, that's that. So London Horror Stories by Tony Walker is, thanks, Garrett, for your wonderful five-star review on Amazon. Anybody else has read it and wants to do a review, that would be really, really good. Uh, It helps. You know, why don't you buy it? Um, you'll find, I talk the talk, but do I write the right? You know, you need to check that out. You know, the Tony Walker reads all these stories out and he goes on about, oh, this is good, this is bad. But when it comes to writing his own stories, does he cut the mustard? Well, only you can decide that. But you need to look at the book first. Actually, for Patreons, oh, here we go again. For Patreons, it's uh, free. It's all up there on the site. So there we are. So London Horror Stories by Tony Walker, I would massively appreciate if you went and uh, if you've got a KDP or Kindle Unlimited, isn't it? You can just read it and have it as one of your borrowed books and I still get credit for it. So it costs you nout and uh, I get a benefit. And of course, I can't think of what else I was going to say. Oh yeah, so the people, it's wonderful that lockdown is easing. I'm really pleased. We've got our own issues here at home, but that's by the by. But they're not listening to my podcast in the same way. So Twitter's been good for me recently. I've been on Twitter. I've had a couple of things there. So yeah, connect, go on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest. I'm now using a lot more Pinterest, which I'm actually really enjoying. So if you can connect with me on any of those, that would be fantastic. And share, 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 share. That would be good too. And you can support me. You can buy me a coffee. Although I'm drinking a lot of coffee these days. I'm, I'm drinking these, this, I've decided I like Guatemalan best. It's nutty. It's even better than Colombian. So that's what I'm drinking right now. It makes me a bit hyper, but there we are. I'm going to go out on my bike when I've done this. I think that's everything. Connect, share, read. I hope you enjoy. I worry about these long four episode jobs. I think people's 
interest wanes, I'll lose, I'll lose you, I'll lose you all. And then what would I do? What would I do on my weekends? Go on my bike more? No, 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 I want to keep doing this. So I hope you're all well. I can't think of anything else I want to ask you to do. It's not all, all about me asking you to do things, though. It's about you enjoying it. I was actually thinking of doing some, because uh, it, it, it appears to me, I have some teachers and students who listen to this, which isn't surprising when you think back to it, although I never, that wasn't my plan. Uh, I wonder if there was any kind of uh, downloads or useful things I could do as a resource for people, because it's all about adding value. It's all about, that's what I want to do, add value. Anyway, hope you're all well. And now we have some music by the Hartwood Institute. Which phase four? My mate Jonathan. He's doing really well at the moment. His following has totally exploded. So that's great. <laughs> 